This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Hollywood Wolfpack with Kaya Alexander, featuring in-depth interviews and insights with professionals in the entertainment business. Get everything you need to navigate your above-the-line career right here. This podcast is often recorded live in front of Kaya students in the Entertainment Business School. You can find out more at entertainmentbusinessschool.com. Hollywood Wolfpack is the new face of entertainment business wisdom. Enjoy the show. All right. Hi, and welcome, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is an unusual and special show because I get to turn the mic around and interview my own podcast producer, Stuart Volko. Stuart has a ton of entertainment business experience. Um, He was a development exec for Phoenix Pictures for Mike Medavoy. He's a member of the Producers Guild of America. He produced on the movie Thin Red Line. If you happen to have seen that, he worked for Sony Pictures, TriStar, for a while, and he is a grad of AFI. I occasionally bring Stuart into the Entertainment Business School. For those of you who are history nerds like I am, if you happen to love history, he has more knowledge about the history of the entertainment business than anyone I've ever known. He's a walking encyclopedia about it, going all the way back to Edison. Uh, So super fascinating. Stuart, thank you so much for being with us here today. You're welcome. What do you want us to know about your background and what has continued to fascinate you about the entertainment business? That is changing. It changes all the time. We've had the, we've had this discussion uh, a few times since since I got involved. Uh, going to, I, my my original involvement started with AFI, and I graduated from the producing program ninety five. And I was trying to think to myself, I've gone I've gone through probably four complete cycles of massive change in the entertainment industry. The first one was the the move from videotape to DVD, and remember that was like a huge change. And then and then also Blu-ray, DVD and Blu-ray, and that was as disruptive as as we're going through now in a lot of ways. And then uh, uh, HGTV, and that that was going to be the demise of theatrical because everyone's going to have their own seventy. So I, I I think that's one of the most fascinating things about it. Is, is that it's always changing, and there yet are always constants. And I also love the fact that the entertainment industry is such an outsized influence on the world. So, yeah. so the fun thing about the entertainment industry is, like, unlike any other career, you know, it's 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 infinite. I mean, one day you're you know you're looking at some massively creative science fiction or fantasy project. The next day it's a historical epic. The next day it's a drama. The next day. So it's sort of like you get to live many lives. Something that Stuart and I talk about occasionally because we're both trend nerds and study the trends is you will hear people say in the industry, oh, Westerns are dead. 
period is dead. Dramedy is dead, which is like as of, you know, August 11th, you know, (laughs) just depending on what day it is. And Stuart has been the one to always remind me like, oh, these things always cycle around. Stu, can you give us an example of that? Well, the Westerns, so that's a great example right there. So what was the most popular television show in history? You could think Seinfeld and you can think the Big Bang Theory, but Gunsmoke. So Bonanza, the audiences for those shows in television were order of magnitude bigger than anything we have today on streaming or on what we call broadcast television. You know, uh, 20 million people would watch those shows at a time. And then people thought, well, that's not going to happen anymore. And of course, now we have Yellowstone. And now we have all the spinoffs of Yellowstone. And, And where do the Westerns start? Well, John Ford, you know, the pantheon of American directors, John Ford more or less invented the genre of the Western in the 1940s and 50s. And they, 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 they're just back again, you know, so that's one good example. Uh, another good example of our perennial kinds of products like vampire movies <laughs> so you know if anyone ever tells me oh we there's too many vampire movies okay now we have voyage of the demeter that kaya you and i have talked about one of the first scripts i read in 1998 or something was voyage of the demeter which has taken this long to actually come to fruition 20 years you guys yeah. dracula, dracula on a boat 20 years <laughs> It's 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 incredible. So uh, you know, in in some ways, everything is cyclic, but it also just boils down to good stories, well told, with the right people behind it, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, I, you know, Kaya has her um, product, her project, uh, Alexandria, which is the uh, story of Alexandria, Egypt, and the Great Library of Alexandria in the fifth century, and every time we talk to anybody about this they go period pieces are so hard and they're so expensive and no one's doing period and every time i turn on the streaming there's period pieces <laughs> so I, I every time this conversation going to go don't even say that to me I, I i'm like really you know militant about it i go yet there's amazing period pieces on all the time it's a it's a perennial it's evergreen so you just have to find a different twist or a different angle or you know, a way of making it relatable to a different audience. Yeah, really good point. So take us back in history for a minute because I know that your lecture on the history of Hollywood goes all the way back you know, 100 years. Could you tell us some tidbits about how Hollywood was made, some surprising things that you wouldn't expect? I like to think of it as the family entertainment center of today. We just had a birthday party that I went to with Atticus for one of his friends turning 12, and it was at a laser tag place. One thing that's never changed is people's desire to be entertained, whether it's a magic lantern show of the 17th and 18th centuries or a traveling circus. <laughs> or an arcade. So movies started out basically as arcades. And instead of it being video games, it was hand-cranked 
animation. And for a penny, you would get this, you know, 30 second or, you know, one minute show. And then maybe you would get a couple of them. And the people that saw this as a viable business were essentially merchants. And when they came to this country as immigrants escaping persecution, one of the lowest barriers of entry businesses that they saw they could get into was these small arcade shops. That's really how it started. And what's the other thing that's, that, that's perennial, never changed? From the day, in fact, I just went to a conference about this a couple months ago at UC San Diego. And the entire conference was the origin of myth and legend. And there were these experts in archaeology and anthropology saying that from the time that people gathered around fires, they began to tell stories. So you could think of it as the cave paintings that are as much as 50,000 years old. Cave paintings, if you think of it that way, they were the cinema of the Stone Age. They recorded their impressions of the hunt or the, you know, the beast that was going to threaten their camp or whatever. They told stories. So all these things came together in the uh, 19th century in the form of these small arcades where you could tell mini stories visually in the form of short animations. That was the beginning of it. And then as the technology evolved, you had this revolution with the kinetoscope. And the big innovation was to go from these very primitive animations to something that was sort of a smooth moving image projected on a wall that the people of that era looked incredibly realistic. I mean, it would be like going into an IMAX theater, right? <laughs> like today we might go into a, an IMAX theater and it's an incredibly realistic, vivid colors. And to them, th this was like that, right? So that's where it started. How did the Jewish moguls of the movie business end up in LA? Well, they didn't, they, they, they first went to New York. And they were like all the other immigrants that were coming, but there was a period of time in several several episodes in uh, what was then the the Russian Empire, where Jews were particularly persecuted, starting in the eighteen hundreds, the early eighteen hundreds, and that created waves of immigration. And those those Jews, they ended up most of them ended up in New York, uh, coming to Ellis Island. And they were mostly uh, laborers. Uh, they were merchants. But how they discovered this, this kind of arcade entertainment business as a, as a good business is, is a little fuzzy, but that's what they ended up doing. Later, in the, so this is in the, in, the, in the early 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, only later did they immigrate across the country to California because it was the best environment for producing uh, movies and they were trying to get away from Edison because Edison tried to monopolize all the technology, the technical innovation Edison tried to patent and he would literally try to shut down any organization or endeavor that was trying to use any other technology at the time. 
So they, they basically ended up in California, number one, to escape the Edison Trust. It was called the Edison Trust. And he was doing this in the image of the other trusts of the uh, 19th century, you know, the Rockefeller Trust and the Oil Trust. Uh, and then secondly, they discovered that uh, California was a great place to shoot because they had to mostly shoot these films with skylights or open air because they didn't have the lighting technology and the film emulsions were not very sensitive. So they'd have a lot of light and they had many good days of shooting. So that's how they kind of, first they actually ended up in Santa Barbara. Right. There's the oldest of the movie studios were, were in uh, Santa Barbara County. And then they discovered LA, you know, which was mostly agricultural land. Louis, you know, MG, the oldest of the studios were established in between 1910 and the 1920s. And of course, they, uh, they, they mostly still exist in some form. Yeah, you were going to mention Louis B. Mayer. And I was just reading a bit of that book that you checked out of the library and realizing, I mean, it's amazing. Amazon bought MGM and it's just gone and gone and gone, you know, to the point where it's it's still alive, but in a new form. And Amazon has acquired, of course, their library, which is just so valuable and um, so much change. So going back from history all the way to today, I know that you're a real student of the trends. Where do you see it going from here? What trends do you forecast will come out of the moment? And how can the listeners who are above the line take advantage of a moment in a post-strike world of where you think the industry is going? First of all, first of all it's always unpredictable. Like no one predicted that net no one predicted Netflix. Uh, no one predicted that. Amazon and Apple would be movie studios. So it, it, the experts are often are almost always wrong. That's that's a very interesting thing to kind of contemplate. You you uh, in my opinion being agile and flexible in how the business is conducted is a necessity. You have to adapt. And it's very difficult to predict in what ways you'll adapt. There are constants, and you have to focus on the constants. You know, what are the good stories well told? What are the ways of telling stories that are creative and evergreen? I do believe that there's a role to immersive media. So I just uh, got back from the SIGGRAPH, annual SIGGRAPH convention, so that's on my mind. Um, and none of the new innovations completely replace the old. So we just had the biggest weekend in Hollywood box office gross in history, right? <laughs> the, 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 the Barbenheimer weekend is the largest box office gross collectively of any weekend in the history of Hollywood. Not quite adjusted for inflation. You could go back to things like Gone with the Wind and other blockbusters. Maybe they were similar. Because remember, in the um, earlier days of uh, before television, pretty much every adult in the United States would go to the movies at least once a week. So at its peak, you had 70 million movie tickets sold in, in a... Um, 
uh, in a week. And that was TV, right? So no one had TV. But now you've got so much fragmentation and movies are back. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so all the new technology, all the streaming, all the broadcasting, all the different, all the different kinds of technologies we have have still not replaced going to the movies. That's proven by the Barbenheimer weekend. Now, is it is it going to be more fragmented? Is it going to be less less often? Is there going to be a a um, a weekend like this? Probably. Um, immersive media so far has not really um, become a mass medium. It's still define, very niche. Define immersive media. But I got to tell you, that means. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Uh, uh, anything to do with 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 augmented reality, virtual reality, or location-based entertainment experiences. So, location-based entertainment is is more you know it, it really is amusement parks. An amusement park or a laser tag facility is location-based entertainment. So, I've now seen some location-based experiences like an amusement park ride. So, anyone that's gone to an amusement park. Universal Studios Tour, Disney, you know, the Harry Potter experience, those are all highly scripted, highly produced with the budgets the size of blockbuster movies. So what's happening is those kinds of experiences are being shrunk down to fit in a storefront. So you don't have the money to go to to go to Disney World to go on the, you know, the Star Wars experience? Well, you might find one at your local mall where you're going to get inside of a, a version of a headset or a version of a rig and go into these experiences, which have characters and storylines and sequels and episodes and chapters. Uh, and I do believe that will become a, a part of the entertainment landscape. So just as a case in point, I, I went to one at SIGGRAPH that that really blew me away. I mean, it was really good. I got to tell Now, it, it was just like a movie. I mean, you could argue about the ending of it and the script and the storytelling and the characters, but it was like being inside of a movie. And the form factor was, I don't know, a 50-foot by 50-foot uh, footprint. And this was a company called dreamscape not to be confused with dreamworks which i confused um and and they have these things in malls right so uh several tourist spots around the world have dreamscape venues so that's that's going to be a part of it and they're going to need all the same things a movie needs uh, I, I talked to uh, uh, some friends of mine, one friend of mine, Valerie Johnson, she was a visual effects supervisor. And now all she does is she's the virtual production supervisor on uh, productions. 
So she's the one that figures out how to do the virtual sets, the virtual backgrounds, and keep that humming, keep that up and running. So new, new, new jobs, you know, new, new tools. But you still need a script. I mean, this thing that I went through was called um, the clock for the clockwork forest. It had a theme where 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 time was stolen, and you had a fixed time, and you went into this fantastical environment where you were shrunk down, and you were taken through this underground matrix with you know uh, fantastical creatures to recapture time, and you know pretty elaborate story, pretty interesting characters, um, condensed down to the kind of a short film. It was like a twenty minute experience. But uh, it was a million. It was a million dollar production, at least. And when you take into account all the gear and setting it up, multi million dollar production. But this now will be quote exhibited at these dreamscape centers around the world. Yeah, that's interesting. Unexpected and uh, and different. It's not an area that I'd considered. I mean, I suppose they're going to have to figure out what to do with all the retail space in the malls that in a lot of cities is going uninhabited now and what will be exciting enough to bring folks back in, uh, like your your love of escape rooms, uh, anything that gets people together to to experience story and play. You know, keep abreast of the LBE uh, industry. This, this, I think, is going to become one of the areas of opportunity. LBE. Location-based entertainment. It's the same as arcades. So right now, the family entertainment centers, you go to laser tag, you go to trampoline parks, you go to you know, uh, fancy arcades. But these are changing pretty rapidly. And this is a, it's a new medium. It's still niche. I mean, we went to these um, escape rooms, for example. But people want to get together. They want to go for entertainment. They like media. They like these uh, to be transported to places that they can't, just like a movie. And it just fragments the landscape a little bit more. So there's different choices. And whether or not these head-mounted displays, the new uh, Meta Quest 2 or um, the Apple Vision Pro become like television sets, do you turn on your large screen or do you pop on your Vision Quest Pro? Will that become a mass medium? And are you going to be producing content, entertainment content for those is still kind of unpredictable. But a version of that will certainly become part of the entertainment landscape. So that I think is pretty clear to me as a prediction. But you'll still have movies. You'll still have You'll still have TV, you'll still have streaming, you'll have all the other choices. What makes it hard for these big companies is it's more fragmented. You don't have mass audiences because you've got so much choice. And so it's harder and harder to aggregate and sustain these immense audiences for one thing. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. The fragmentation is uh, is perpetuating. Hey, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about the inside of the Producers Guild. 
of course, with the strikes, the dual strikes happening right now, the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA has really been in the headline news. But I know for my students, for a lot of my guests, there's a little bit of opaque mystery to the Producers Guild. What do they do? What do they, um, what does that guild look like? What are the advantages to becoming a member of the guild? And how do you become a member of the guild? Would you tell us about it a little bit? Sure. So... What is the what is the, the guild? So the pr- producing is the vaguest job. <laughs> so I always say the only the like when you go to a movie set, the only job there, there's jobs that, that you cannot fake, that you have to have incredible skill, and that's the cinematography department. You got to know what you're doing. There is no shortcut. It's a lot to know, and the costumer <laughs> you can't fake that either. You got to know a lot fabrics textures colors making video. Uh, so you know the other jobs production design you have to know a lot you have to know architecture and drawing and art um directing you can know nothing and be a director i'm not i'm not, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way but literally you can just rely on all the other people on the set to do the actual work and if you just have a vision for what you want you can get get away with it. I'm not saying that's a great way to do it, but it's possible, right? And producing is even more vague. What What is producing even? Well, I got a writer to do a script and I found the money and I managed to, you know, get some studio to say yes. So the Producers Guild tried to codify and create a criteria for what exactly is producing as a job. And they did this by setting out a document which shows you the requirements in order to get a official producing credit, which is p.g.a. So when you see the p.g.a after the producing credit logo, you know that that person on that project has checked off this list of things. So on the list of things is, did you go to the set? How many days were you at the set? What did you actually do on the set? Did you actually supervise anything? Did you do the budget? Did you help with the budget? Did you work on the script? What did you do on the script? How many days, how many meetings did you attend? So for instance, executive producing credits. So what happened was the the producing credits on movies got really bloated and everyone will remember this. Either there, were, there were 20 producers on the movie, and there were 10 on the front credits and, and, and 10 on the back credits. There were executive producer, co-executive producer, producer, line producer, co-producer. And it got to be kind of ridiculous where it got watered down, what those credits meant. So executive producer can mean I just wrote a check. I have no idea how the movie gets made. I got to visit the set. I got to hang out with the, with the actors. I went to the premiere. It was a lot of fun. Done. And you got a credit. Um, pro- producing now, so so for the Producers Guild, that now is specific. So to join the Producers Guild, you can apply and you have to submit to them a resume that details the work that you did on a couple of projects that can be verified by a third party. So did Stewart actually show up to the set? Did he actually have substantive contributions to the creative process? Did he give you notes? You know, did you actually do work? And do you actually know what you're doing? So they check that. 
And that's what makes that credit more meaningful. Um, and anybody can apply to be in the Producers Guild. There's a, a, a subdivision of it called the New Media Council, which gives people that are in the visual effects industry, the animation industry, the gaming industry, an opportunity to be in the guild as well, because they're recognized as modified producers. The other th reason for the guild is producers never had a guild. <laughs> so they never had any uh, negotiation clout or insurance or protections of any kind like the other guilds. So they continue to try and establish that like the other disciplines. So fees, we're going to have producing fees. There, there is no standard for producing fees. What it, what is it what it, what is a producing fee like how do you even negotiate that lawyers entertainment lawyers they know customary they call it customary what is the customary fee so for example the customary amount for the producing department in a movie is roughly 10 percent so if you have a hundred million dollar movie 10 million dollars goes to all the producing activities right 20% goes to the above the line so but what is it what does that even mean if you if you have 20 different people that claim they're they're getting producing credit how do you divide it up so the other thing is line producers and line producing is a little different than the PGA producing title uh, so if you if it was a company every movie is like a startup you go from zero to a whole company, and then you wind it down at the end. So if you think of a movie as a company, the, the producer, the PGA producer, is like a CEO or like a COO. That's how I would equi equivalent. The line producer is more like the program manager, project manager, or executive vice president who's actually got responsibility for day-to-day -day operations. So they're the ones that are going to sweat it out on the set. Did we make our day? Did we shoot enough? Did the scene that we needed to get this day get in the can? Did the weather change? We have to do another day. I mean, they get into the... Now, the, the PGA producer could also get involved in that stuff, but they're trying to stay a little bit at a higher level like, well, is the movie going to get done? Is it going to get distributed? Who's distributing it? Are they going to give us a good advertising campaign? Are they the whole thing from soup to nuts you want to be involved in? Whereas the line producer, beginning of principal uh, the budgeting, beginning of principal photography, end of principal photography, done. And the PGA producer, well, now you got post production to worry about. Then you've got, you know, uh, all of the distribution problems to worry about. They're they're on it for much longer, like the director. Directors are on the movie for you know a long time. The producers are on the movie for even longer. So now it's still a weak guild because they they don't really have a uh, 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 an official like IATSE union where they can negotiate rates. There's no set rate for producing services. Successful, iconic producers establish sort of their deal. And the only customary thing in the entertainment industry is, is you get increased with every project. So same thing with writers, directors, actors. What did you make on your last deal? Oh, 
you made, you know, your fee was $50,000. You're producing it. Well, this time we have to get you $70,000. <laughs> so that's the only constant uh, in, in most areas of the entertainment industry is they're trying to get you a little more each time. Well, agents so are the, small for producers, right? Some producers have agents like our friend Scott, who's at UTA, and others don't. And they're essentially um, going after their own deals, maybe with their attorneys. Is that correct? Yeah, so for, for the, this is the benefit of producing. The benefit of producing is you can produce an infinite number of things. You can always be producing a lot of things. You, you don't get penalized for failure like directors. Like you, directors, every time you direct a movie, it's a, it's, it's a year to two years of your life. And if that movie fails, it gets a lot harder to get the next movie. And if it succeeds, it maybe gets a little easier. But you have a very limited number of movies you can direct in a career uh, producing you can have 10 movies you're producing at the same time most producers will have a manager um, many of them will have an agent some producers will end up with a production company where in the company they have their own legal department and they will handle the papering of the deals but the royal road to producing is the intellectual property is to control the rights to the property. That's the only thing that really can be some insurance that you will get a producing credit on a project, that you have some control or some stake in the underlying rights. Well, thank you, Stuart, for sharing all your expertise with us today. I really appreciate you jumping in, and uh, it was good to catch up with you. Where can people find you on uh, socials? Uh, S. Volko. S is in Stuart, V-O-L-K-O-W. On Twitter, Insta, and LinkedIn, of course. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Wolfpack. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please, help our pack grow by sharing Hollywood Wolfpack with your friends and colleagues. Give us a rating and write us a review. Kaya loves hearing from you and reads them all. For more on Kaya and the Entertainment Business School, visit entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Until next week, remember, the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack.